If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. We drink hundreds of billions of cups of coffee a year, but few of us take the time to think about the history of the ubiquitous caffeinated beverage. But that history is actually a fascinating one, spanning more than 500 years and much of the globe. From 16th century Sufi mystics in Yemen to the flat white finessas in trendy cafes of London and New York today. In this week's Everything You Want to Know episode, Rob Attar put your questions on coffee history to Professor Jonathan Morris at the University of Hertfordshire. Jonathan, in advance of this interview, I asked you which coffee we should be drinking while we're having this conversation. And you mentioned a couple of options. One was from Yemen and one from Ethiopia. Now, I've got a cup here of the Yayu Wild Forest, which was from Ethiopia. But it'll be really good if you could perhaps explain to our listeners why you recommended coffee from these countries in particular. Yeah, well, both those countries are the first two countries, really. They are the origin countries for the story of coffee. The coffee that you're drinking from Yayu Wild Forest, so that is the closest we can get, really, to wild coffee at this point. This is coffee that's grown, or really, it's not so much grown as nurtured in the forest. So it's um, coffee is native to southwest Ethiopia, and it grows as an understory plant in the forests there. There are thousands of little subspecies that are there in Ethiopia. But despite that, this is coffee called, uh, the species that we use is a coffee called Coffea arabica. And that's because actually the story of coffee begins with essentially coffee that is gathered in Ethiopia being exported to Arabia, to Yemen, for the first known consumers of coffee. So in effect, those two coffees give us the first two links in our story of coffee. Uh, And so you're drinking the closest that we could get to wild coffee. And we have had actually quite a lot of questions about the origins of coffee. And um, we had one from Guy Wilson TN on Instagram, who asked quite a simple question, who invented coffee? And then we've got Kelsey Downey94 also on Instagram, who wanted to know what's the earliest record of coffee being drunk. So I, I suppose in this case, we really want to talk about when and who. When did coffee begin? Who began drinking it? Yeah, if only there were very simple answers to those questions. So let's start. We've said, you know, coffee is growing uh, wild in Ethiopia. It is originally foraged, the plant is foraged uh, for all kinds of preparations by the peoples uh, living in that area, the kind of the Aromo people, the people around Kafir in particular. And they really use the plant in many ways. So they use the leaves of the plant to prepare a sort of a tea-like drink. They use the cherries, coffee, I should say, essentially the, the form that coffee takes is that it sets a lot of fruit, which we call coffee cherries, inside 
that fruit is the stones, if you like, the pips, which will be the future seeds. And those are the things that we now call coffee beans. So originally what they would do is take those cherries, use them in various forms, including taking a sort of a desiccated cherry and turning that into a form of beverage, but also in other ways turning it, they might take that same cherry and turn it into more of a solid thing, a sort of a snack-like thing by blending it with various fats. So coffee is being used in those various forms. Uh, It is used to prepare a sort of beverage, but really using all of the elements of the coffee plant. What happens in terms of what we can do as historians is that we do know that around the 1450s, coffee began to be being imported across the uh, Red Sea into southern Yemen. And the reason for this and the first users of coffee were some of the Sufi mystic sets. And they use it originally in their religious ceremonies. Now, what we understand from the first historical records that we have the first real manuscript we have dates to around 1515 but it recounts this story of coffee and it says that one of those uh, Sufi leaders recommended to his followers to bring in this drink that he had experienced when he had traveled in Ethiopia because it could be used in place of the beverage that they normally used in their ceremonies, which was based on the hallucinogenic drug called cat. So there may have been a shortage of cat at that time in Yemen. It may have been that he simply wanted him to, to use this drink as an alternative. But that's the reason why this trade started. Now, we know that this guy, who was called al-Dabani, died in the 1470s. Uh, We know by then that this practice had been established. So that's about the time that we can date the first drink that is not necessarily coffee, and we'll go on to why, but that is made with the, um, if you like, material from the coffee plant and from the coffee cherry. The drink at that point is known as Keisha. And the point about Keisha is that it uses the dried cherry as well as the beans so use the whole of the desiccated fruit you grind it up you perhaps slightly toast it you add water and this was used by uh, Sufis in their devotions uh, the so-called dikas that they hold these long night ceremonies where they go into a, a sort of a meditative or hallucinogenic state and sing various mantras and so forth we then have the point at which coffee kind of moves from being purely this quiche drunk in ceremonies to being drunk also as a social drink. Now we know by 1511, because there is a very famous trial, that uh, coffee was being drunk sociably amongst certainly the Muslim men. And uh, we know this because there was a moment in Mecca, which again is recorded in our manuscript, in which essentially the Pasha, as it were, the governor of Mecca, put coffee on trial, which is to say he found various people drinking coffee outside the mosque in the evening. And he arrested those people and then effectively brought a case to the religious authorities in which he 
asked them to debate the merits of coffee drinking. Now, this is in 1511, and there appears to be quite a lot of pressure exercised by the Pasha and some of the physicians that he calls as witnesses to this debate to say that, you know, coffee drinking should be illicit under Islam. Instead, the ruling is more complicated. The ruling effectively says, no, coffee is illicit, but meeting to drink coffee in public isn't. Now, that probably goes to the heart of what the Pasha wanted, which is to say that he was probably attempting to suppress the meetings of people. However, by the time this ruling then is passed up, because we're at the time that uh, Mecca is under the control of the Mamluk uh, dystony in Egypt, by the time it reaches Cairo, this gets reversed, and in effect fairly soon coffee drinking returns to being regarded as licit. And that's critical because, of course, this is the point at which coffee is licit, but alcohol is illicit. So coffee becomes the first licit sort of drink around which socialisation can be undertaken by Muslim men, uh, and that obviously transforms uh, quite a lot of uh, society. So the coffee that's being drunk in the Middle East at this time... How similar is that to the kind of coffee we drink today? Would we recognise that as coffee? It's a good question. I think the answer is if we were Arabian, we would probably recognise it as coffee, but it bears little resemblance to what you and I drink and think of as coffee. For a start, the ways in which that's prepared, as I said, first of all, it's usually using the whole of the cherry. So today that would be, it looks more like a tea drink and it's much lighter in colour because they would only very lightly toast, as it were, these sort of the, the ground up fruit. So if you've ever seen an Arabian coffee, it can look a little like that and it would have spices in it. Cardamom would be one that we might see. It's nothing like the coffee you and I drink. It's not the sort of much darker roasted coffee. It doesn't have pure use of coffee bean. So in that sense, it's not really that um, close to what uh, we are used to drinking today. A lot of that transformation or the first bit of that transformation really occurs as coffee moves from Arabia and is kind of moves into the Ottoman domain. The Ottoman Empire, uh, in fact, um, comes to exercise influence over Yemen. They effectively overthrow the Mamluks. And the coffee reaches to Istanbul. It comes up through Arabia, through Damascus, eventually gets to Istanbul. By the time we get to Istanbul, we've got a very different drink. We've got a drink which is being very heavily roasted, so and it's based solely on the coffee bean. So that's much closer to what we still think of, you know, what we tend to call now Turkish coffee, uh, and prepared in roughly the same way using this sort of um, the so-called e-brick, or the, the, in fact what actually is called a, a, a yetzva, and then poured from something called an e-brick. But that little pot that you put, you know, crushed coffee grounds into and then boil up the pot several times that preparation that you know you may be used to from a turkish restaurant uh is pretty much what's going on in istanbul by the 1500s 1550s and from there when does coffee make it over to western europe again this is a sort of a multiple part moment 
probably coffee gets into, as it were, Western Europe, I mean, effectively crossing the divide from the Ottoman Empire into Western Europe, probably around the 1600s, a little bit before. It's certainly known of by the late 1500s. It's reported to the Venetian Senate, for example. It's believed that some uh, Ottoman merchants would have had coffee and coffee drinking paraphernalia in Venice at that time. Remember, Venice is obviously the sort of the big trading capital in this at this point. By the 1600s, coffee is being seen in Europe, seen primarily at this point as a medicinal product, it's not until the 1650s that it really begins to start being used as a social beverage. Coffee drinking, obviously, is slowly spreading around the world. Is it also at this time that the production of coffee starts moving away from its heartland into other parts of the world? Well, that's, again, slightly later, but yes, it's a development out of this. So, essentially, all coffee up to really about the 1700s is coming from Ethiopia and Yemen. Yemen is, uh, by the 1550s, uh, the Yemenis are actually growing coffee. So the first cultivated coffee, as opposed to the first foraged wild coffee, is cultivated in Yemen. It's cultivated up in the mountains alongside uh, along Sana, and it's being traded, this coffee, through the Red Sea, through the Gulf, around the Indian Ocean. Most of the trade is probably under the influence of what's known as the, sort of the Banyan merchant class from Gujarat. And, of course, the coffee that is being traded, most of it is shipped through two ports, one of which is Al-Makar, and Al-Makar uh, becomes known to Europeans as Mocha, and essentially the East Indian National Trading Companies, the Dutch East Indian Company, the French, the British, all acquire coffee from Mocha and ship it into uh, Europe. Now, the amount of coffee that they can get is obviously somewhat limited and it's difficult to, uh, to obtain as a regular supply. And by the 1700s, um, several of those companies begin to look for other ways and other places in which to grow coffee. Originally, uh, the first people really to, to move coffee outside are the Dutch. They succeed in finding some uh, coffee seeds in Malabar in India, which we think were probably taken there by pilgrims who'd completed the Hajj. They plant them on the island of Java, currently part of Indonesia at that time, sort of the, the capital of the Dutch East Indies. And they plant them also later in Suriname on the kind of the, the main uh, coast of the Caribbean, if you like, the northeast coast of what we would call Latin America. Meanwhile, the French also begin to take coffee to other points. They take it to the island uh, then known as Bourbon, now known as Réunion uh, of Africa. And that is probably the first point at which enslaved labour is basically brought in to cultivate coffee. And they take that same system and, like the Dutch in Suriname, take enslaved labour over to the Caribbean and plant coffee in their Caribbean territories, most notably in uh, what is then Saint-Domingue, which uh, we currently know as Haiti. 
And the other European imperial powers do the same. So the Spanish are planting coffee in Cuba, the British plant some coffee in Jamaica. But we would have to say that the French, who plant originally in Martinique and then in Saint-Domingue, they they become very much the dominant coffee producers of the 18th century and indeed the probably the largest market for coffee. So you've already mentioned there the use of enslaved labour in producing coffee. I mean, that was something that was happening a lot with also things like sugar, for example, and other crops. Yeah. How integral was enslaved labour to the production of coffee? Essentially, during the 18th century, pretty much all coffee was being produced with enslaved labour. The whole system, as you said, we get a kind of symbiosis whereby, you know, uh, sugarcane is grown at the lower levels in these uh, territories, and then coffee tends to be grown at upper levels. Coffee is a tropical crop in the sense that it, it cannot survive frost, but it is not actually tolerant of very high temperatures either. Remember, it's originally that understory crop. So it tends to be grown higher up on the mountainside where it's protected from frost, but also protected from high temperatures. So it forms a kind of companion planting crop to sugar and in terms of labor then obviously the system is always to use enslaved labor you would not be able to get coffee in the 18th century that hadn't been grown using enslaved labor so it's absolutely integral um, to the fortunes of coffee and indeed uh, we were talking about Saint-Domingue so Saint-Domingue becomes the biggest coffee producer in the 1770s and uh, 1780s and um, the revolution in Saint-Domingue that ultimately results in the creation of Haiti, the first black republic, uh, has a large involvement of enslaved labour from coffee plantations, of also the the much more complicated situation where we have those uh, free people of colour who often themselves are involved in owning coffee plantations where they would have slave labourers. So, for example, Toussaint Louverture, who's, who's the great leader of, of Haiti, was had had or had owned a coffee plantation, leased a coffee plantation, I should say, with enslaved labour upon it. So it's a complex situation, but the, but the bottom line is all your coffee is, is grown by enslaved people. Now, a, a big aspect of the history of coffee is, of course, the history of the coffee house. And we had a few questions actually sent in about that. And uh, the first one I wanted to put to you was from Claire Munro 94 on Instagram. And she asked, when did coffee houses first appear in England and what was their impact? So coffee houses first appear in England in the 1650s. Uh, the most precise records that we have suggest that uh, a man called Pasqua Rosé opened first a market stall and then a coffee house in the area around um, St. Michael's Cornhill, right opposite where the Bank of England is now, between 1652 and 1654. And actually, um, although this is a much contested debate, I would say that in terms of a documented functioning coffee house, that is not only the first in England, it is actually the first in Europe. And there is quite a good reason for that, and that is that the 1650s are, of course, a time when England is going through the Civil War, when the power of the guilds in England is particularly weak, uh, whereas in the continent it's still quite strong. So I had said to you that, you know, there were coffee, that coffee was in sort of uh, Venice, for example, much earlier. But in Venice, 
coffee and the sale of coffee was something restricted to apothecaries until much later. Uh, in England, it became possible to for people to exploit that civil war situation to set up coffee houses. Rose was the first. Already very quickly during the 1650s, the coffee house uh, spread quite dramatically. Unlike, as it were, the Republican reign, the coffee house survived the transition back to monarchy, not least because coffee houses, not very long after they were in London, began appearing in places like Oxford, the royalist capital. So basically, both sets of combatants, both sets of opinion formers on both the parliamentary and the royalist side were using coffee houses as places to meet, uh, to refresh themselves and to discuss their political leanings. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now, we had a couple more questions about coffee houses, which I thought I might run together as they're quite similar. So um, James Dallin on Instagram wrote in to ask, were coffee houses in Europe really places of great social equality? And also, was this true elsewhere in the world? And then Sam Hendrick on Facebook said, what was the connection between coffee shops and the Enlightenment? Let's start with with coffee shops and equality and where they are. So the origin of the coffee house is really, again, goes back to the Middle East. It goes, uh, if we look at the, the coffee houses that, that rise first, I mean, the first coffee house that we probably are definitive about is one in Damascus in 1534. We know that coffee houses were already opening in Istanbul by the 1550s. In some ways, the model of those coffee houses is very open and democratic in the sense that anyone can, in theory, go in. There is a protocol which is that you tend to be seated and served in the order that you arrive. Now, that undermines a huge number of sort of status markers that would normally exist in society, yes? So in that respect, they are revolutionary and open places. And the thing to be said is that while that same model applies initially in Europe, and while the principle of this uh, still applies very strongly, we also have to look at what the practice looks like. So even when we go back to the origins of the coffee house, we'd also find that many of the people employed making coffee might well be enslaved people, might well be tired immigrants. We look at the coffee houses in places like uh, London, and there are two things that we can say about that. One is that, uh, first of all, half the population is probably excluded because women are not present in coffee houses as consumers. They're somewhat present as servers. The second is to say that this is a kind of what you might, uh, what Marx would call bourgeois universalism. It's open to everybody, but of course you have to have the disposable income and the disposition 
to go to the coffee house. Now, that kind of brings us also to the Enlightenment because the people who do have that disposition and have the income are often uh, the kind of the thinkers, the cultural elite. Um, and we know that many of the people that we associate with the Enlightenment patronised coffee houses. If we were to think of France in particular, we know that sort of people like Diderot, people like Voltaire would be found in the coffee houses, drinking coffee, debating arguments and so forth. There's a second trend to that, which uh, which tends to be emphasised in particularly the English context, which is the connection between the coffee house and the growth of institutions like the Stock Exchange, like Lloyd's, the, the insurance brokers. In other words, these become places where people with uh, a similar trade or similar interest will meet and effectively conduct their business. So the very first patrons of Pasqua Rose's coffee house were in fact um, merchants who were, they were known as stock jobbers, who were kind of thrown out of the Royal Exchange because they were too rowdy and would tend to meet therefore in the coffee houses. Uh, by the way, I'm kind of proud of the fact that Jonathan's coffee house was the one that sparked the London Stock Exchange. So what we've got is an argument that these places drive new ideas and they drive also entrepreneurship. They drive sort of um, the rise of, of, in a way, of capitalism. And, you know, there's another reason for that, which, of course, is, you know, coffee has this sort of metabolizing element to it. Uh, and whereas previously people would probably socialize over sort of um, small beer, light ale, this kind of thing, be drinking that, um, coffee obviously doesn't have any of the inhibiting capital, or not the inhibiting characteristics socially but rather inhibiting characteristics on the brain so whereas small beer even in small quantities would probably slow down slightly one's capacity for um, thinking fast coffee speeds that up uh, and that becomes much um, prized so this sort of ability of coffee is much um, considered as a sort of part of that you know the attraction of the of the thing we also had a few questions come in relating to, I guess, what you'd call coffee's great rival in the hot drink stakes, which is, of course, tea. And um, Viva Gardner on Instagram wanted to know, how do the histories of coffee and tea in Europe differ from each other? There's another element to that question, which is how do the histories of coffee and tea differ in Europe from place to place? So uh, if we start with Britain then yes, tea and coffee come in at the same time and chocolate too, actually, which was at this stage also drunk. They tend to be both served in the same places, but tea becomes the dominant drink in Britain. There are many arguments as to why this is the case. One would certainly seem to be to do with essentially decisions taken or arrived at in the East India Company whereby they saw control of the tea market as easier to achieve because of the tea in China and India than they did control of the coffee market where coffee was coming in through independent merchants to uh, the UK. It was much more sort of independent um, need to gather coffee from elsewhere. And some people will argue that there are taxation regimes 
particularly taxation changes that in terms of the duties that tend to favour tea. The end result is that tea is often seen as more of the domestic drink, the drink to be prepared at home. It's easier and it tends to be seen also as a drink uh, more suited for women. This tends to be accentuated by the fact that the Queen Catherine of Braganza, who was the, the, the wife of Charles II, was notably a, a sort of a tea drinker, and that appears to have set a precedent. And we know that women tended to uh, go to not coffee houses, but tea gardens and pleasure gardens and meet chaperoned for tea. So... In Britain, tea becomes both the domestic drink and it also becomes the drink of the working and lower middle classes, partly because they see it as cheaper, presumably, uh, partly because it's easier to prepare. And as in Europe in other ways, because tea can be used as a fuel for those people who want to continue working. So if you take tea, you add milk, you add sugar, you've actually turned that from a pretty non-calorific thing into something that's giving you calories and a hot drink that can carry you on as you are trying to complete your piecework. Now, in Europe, particularly Western Europe, actually the rest of Western Europe, coffee and tea situation is somewhat reversed. That's to say coffee becomes the cheaper drink. Coffee becomes the drink used by uh, the workers, particularly, for example, I think the first thing that we could say there is, for example, in the low countries that coffee is used by weavers. We know as sort of something that they will be drinking coffee whilst continuing to work on their looms. And coffee, therefore, becomes the cheaper of the two and the more widespread consumed drink. I say Western Europe because if we go to the further east of Europe, if we were to get to Russia again, the situation is reversed in Russia. Tea dominates over coffee. So there are different ways in which these two drinks um, history plays out in different markets. Sticking with this subject, we had um, Eric A. Blair on Twitter, and I'm imagining that's probably not George Orwell, but someone uh, taking a similar name. And he wanted to know, um, why did the US go for coffee? And is that connected with the War of Independence? Okay, so the, the US and coffee is, is one of those great stories. The most traditional version of this goes, Boston Tea Party rejecting taxes on, uh, you know, British taxes on tea. Everyone drinks coffee as a patriotic duty, etc. If you start unpicking it, that's a bit less clear. So for a start, really, the patriotic thing to do is not to drink things British rather than not to drink tea. Uh, so although that might have led to some stimulus for coffee, because they would turn to particularly the French during this period, and the French would obviously be better a place to supply coffee, there are changes again during that period uh, as supplies change. So we actually see that coffee doesn't really begin to become a dominant force over tea in the US until much later. We see that there's a lot of coffee during the Civil War. Uh, soldiers on the Union side are supplied with coffee and supplied with coffee in large quantities, and that may well have created a lasting market for coffee. But even you know, into the 1880s, by the time you do the sums, the amounts of tea and coffee being drunk are pretty much the same. So one of the 
you know, the great companies involved in the big expansion of retailing in America at that time is the American and Pacific Tea Company, which becomes actually now one of the big grocery trains selling coffee, for example. However, what we can say is in the 1880s, and around then, uh, a few things happen that, that really come together. One is that coffee becomes a much more industrial crop, both in terms of production, as Brazil massively expands its coffee production, and Brazil is primarily marketing to the US. And the second is that coffee roasting becomes its own industry. Up until that time, when coffee is being sort of marketed in Europe in the 18th century, it's mostly sold still as green coffee. It's either roasted for you, possibly by your grocer, but most likely by yourself uh, in your house. The 19th century sees the rise of pre-roasted coffee, and thus the creation of the coffee roasting trade. And that's also based on better packaging and the creation of sort of marketing and distribution systems linked to sort of railways and so forth. So the first mass market for coffee is the American market. At the same time as those industrial changes are happening, America obviously is becoming a land which takes in huge numbers of migrants, particularly between the 1880s and 1900s, from primarily Europe. And those Europeans are, if not already drinking coffee, they are already nurtured in the idea that coffee is what they want to be drinking and to have access to. And so the big sort of sprint by which coffee dominates in terms of actual numbers is post that 1880s period, between the 1880s and, say, the 1950s, when coffee hits its highest levels of consumption in the US um, per capita. So that's the big differential period. So the US is an interesting story. It obviously has all these associations with coffee, but actually the story is rather more complicated than we've been led to think. Now, I think you did allude to this in your last answer, but we've had a couple of questions about the changing nature of coffee over time. So um, we had Rach74006 on Instagram wanted to know how the making of coffee has changed over the years. And then Bouquet of Sharpened Pen, also on Instagram, uh, wanted to know how the taste of coffee has changed over time. So I wonder if you could share a few thoughts on those. Let's deal with the preparation of coffee first. We started talking about, uh, you know, the original sort of Turkish-style preparation of coffee. And again, in really in the 19th century, we start seeing the sort of development of different brewing techniques. So the first sort of coffee preparations are nearly always using coffee boiled in the water at the same time. The shifts begin to come in the 19th century when we see different ways of perhaps using coffee, but taking the coffee out of the water. And that changes the nature of the final um, liquor, as it were. So if we think about the kind of pots that are developing, we develop the sort of the drip pot in which, you know, you put water in an upper chamber, it drips through 
a sort of container of coffee into a lower chamber. So you're preparing the coffee by, in effect, filtering or percolating, literally percolating the water through. That develops further again when you have someone like uh, Melita Benz, who famously invents um, the sort of the paper filters that associate with the company Melita in the early 1900s that cleans the coffee. So it means that, you know, you get much less coffee grinds going through into your final drink. And cleaning the coffee, by the way, is one of the things that creates um, some of the weirder things that people do with coffee because, you know, the ideas of putting egg in coffee or putting fish skin in coffee or putting what there's a sort of more sophisticated that using something called isinglass, which is derived from fish scales. All of these are put in at various times to essentially to try and bring down the grinds to the bottom of the coffee pot and keep them out of your drink. The other version of that is what we now know as the cafetiere, the French press, that again begins to be developed in the mid-19th century, although in order to get the kind of fittings that will actually effectively separate the grounds from the coffee, we, we have to wait actually until the 20th century to be able to do that effectively. So all of those preparation methods give different forms of coffee. But we also have a difference in terms of what's going in the pot. And the big one, again, comes later again. And that is all of the coffee up until the 20th century that we're using, nearly all of that coffee, is composed of coffee arabica, that species growing in Ethiopia. At the very sort of second half, the end of the 19th century, there is a huge movement of what is called coffee rust, coffee leaf rust, that just wipes out the coffee plantations in Asia. Believed to have begun, I think, in Sri Lanka, in uh, then Ceylon, and it just destroys plantations. It doesn't destroy them in one go. It just means they become weaker and weaker. The, the trees begin to die off and begin to yield less. So to take the case of Sri Lanka Ceylon, that in the 1860s was one of the world's major coffee producers. Indeed, at one point, it was probably some years the leading coffee producer. By the 1900s, Ceylon is a net importer of coffee. Asia as a whole moves from being about 30% of the world's coffee supply to about 5%. What happens around this time is obviously there's a search for other things or other species of coffee that might be more resilient or rust resilient. And the one that begins to be adopted most is uh, what's called coffea canafora, which comes from West Africa and is more commonly known as, as robusta coffee. Robusta coffee has some important distinctions from Arabica coffee. Robusta is much more caffeinated, so it has twice the caffeine content of Arabica. It overall probably has, if not a harsher taste, a more rubbery taste. It usually ends up being roasted more highly in order to try and counteract that taste. So what we see is a shift in what's in our overall cup. And that becomes even more the case in about the 1950s when Robusta really becomes a much bigger commodity in the world, partly because of the fact that it is used for a new form of coffee, essentially, which is kind of instant coffee, soluble coffee. Because it's cheap, 
um, because we now have the processes, those early instant coffees use a lot of Robusta. And at the same time, a lot of the African states in particular that are gaining independence, as well as some of those in Asia, invest in Robusta production in order to boost their foreign exchange and a lot of the ex-colonial powers actually in the first place beginning importing their coffee from their ex-colonies. And um, so France and Britain, for example, would certainly be doing that. And so the, all together, the quotient of Robusta rises quite considerably in coffee. And that does change the taste of coffee quite significantly. We had, a, I suppose, a related question from TW on Twitter and they said, although coffee originated in Africa, how did it become synonymous with Italy with types of coffee such as espresso, latte, cappuccino, things like that? Although, correct me if I'm wrong, I think cappuccino might potentially have its origins in, in Vienna possibly or somewhere like that. But, but yeah, certainly there's a lot of Italian names for coffee now. We do associate it with Italy. So how did that happen? Yeah, TW is my kind of guy. Uh, that's how I got into the history of coffee because I'm, in, I'm a historian of Italy. And then I started seeing the spread of these Italian coffee drinks around the world and tried to get to the, the heart of that. So let's just do a, a quick lesson and then complicate it. So easy explanation of Italian coffee is that espresso machines develop in Italy. Essentially what espresso is about is using pressure to speed up the brewing process. And the first machines that do that come around in the early 1900s. Uh, they're developed. There's a guy in Turin who creates a prototype, but essentially they, they're born really in Milan in the 1900s. Um, the first machine really that's commercialized is one called La Pavoni Ideale. And at this point, they're just using very small amounts of pressure, steam pressure. So these, these are these huge, beautiful machines that sit on countertops. Uh, look enormous and deliver what actually is more like a concentrated filter coffee than anything like what we would call espresso today. That only develops in the second half of the 20th century. Famously, Achille Gadja produces the first machine with a, a, a lever, a spring-coiled piston that sort of uses much higher pressures. That creates that mousse of oils on top of the espresso that we call crema. So that's the first time we see anything that looks like a current day espresso. So that again is about speeding up time. The name itself indicates it. Yeah, the espresso is the, the idea of, you know, you can do this much quicker and you can do it at the same time freshly and you prepare a cup for each customer. Now, the way that some of these drinks other drinks develop is quite interesting and the reason that they perhaps spread and become synonymous with Italy likewise. So you asked me about cappuccino and cappuccino is a good example of how technique and a beverage can change with the same name. So you're right in saying that the origins of that really reside in Vienna and in the notion of the cappuccino and the cappuccino is a reference to the colour Basically, in uh, Vienna, in Viennese coffee houses, you could kind of order your coffee by colour, and it's really about the combination colour between the milk and the coffee and what that, therefore, really a ratio is. So at that time, you're just talking about, for want of a better word, ordinary black coffee with ordinary milk in a poured in a certain ratio. And the reason it's cappuccino, cappuccino, is because the capuchin monk's robes are this sort of colour of light brown. 
The Austrians had a very strong influence in Italy, in North in Italy, particularly northeastern Italy, indeed Trieste, which is now part of Italy, was a, was really the coffee importing capital of the Austrian Empire. And we think, therefore, that the notion of cappuccino travelled with the Austrians into Italy and became cappuccino. Still, at that time, as just you know, black coffee, white milk. Cappuccino becomes what we see today over, therefore, the iterations of the espresso machine. The very first espresso machines do contain steam ones. These were used primarily for actually warming cocktails rather than warming milk, but gradually this this notion of using them to warm milk and then to froth milk evolved. And then, of course, once you have the espresso also changing nature and you add that and the now froth milk, you have this beverage cappuccino that can only be made on an espresso machine. Interestingly enough, I think it's the cappuccino that actually accounts for the spread and the iconicity, if I can use that word, of Italian coffee, because that's the thing that foreign tourists begin to see in Italy and see as very different, but also find the more approachable beverage than espresso, espresso being this sort of very small concentrated thing. So again, primarily really probably in the post-war era, you have the start of mass tourism into Italy. So you have places like, you know, Germans, for example, who then begin drinking cappuccino back in their own countries. The espresso machines begin to spread. So we see the sort of the first you know, we see that coffee bar craze in uh, the UK in the late 50s, early 60s. But it's really the second iteration of this that that completely does the number, as it were. And that's obviously the kind of the Starbucks era. Famously, uh, Howard Schultz went to Milan in the early 80s, saw the theatre of the Italian coffee bar, and but also the theatre of how you prepare those drinks incorporated that into a coffee house format around the Starbucks coffee shop format. And that kind of is what spread around the world, peddling what I would call Italian style beverages rather than necessarily the beverages that are drunk in Italy. So I think that, you know, there's a very, a very set of interlinked interactions there between the actual development of espresso beverages in Italy and the ways in which those get translated and adopted into the world. There's an interesting thing now where beverages using espresso begin to appear from other parts of the world and in some cases can even find themselves translated back into Italy itself. Perhaps one of the most famous beverages in recent years is the flat white. The flat white is a very interesting one because that kind of goes a very weird passageway. So the flat white in truth developed primarily as uh, in Australia my attempts at finding who made the first flat white lead me to going through newspapers and going through newspapers the first time I see the words flat white used are in the 1980s and they're actually and it's a weird one this it's because at a certain point it seems that the milk that was being produced in Australia probably because we were at a point where they were shifting the cows from pasture to hay or vice versa wasn't frothing very well and so signs were put up in some local coffee shops saying in Canberra and in Melbourne, you know, we can't, uh, we've got no cappuccinos, but we can do flat whites. And this seems to have been the start of the, the notion of the flat white as a beverage. Uh, the flat white is used as a kind of uh, ambassador drink for what we might call high quality specialty 
coffee preparation. There's a famous coffee shop that opens in London called Flat White in uh, Soho in the 2000s. The Flat White then kind of spread into, seeped into the sort of the main coffee chain menus like Costa, etc. And then got fed back into Starbucks and America. So actually the Flat White is now available over in America, but quite late in that process. Meanwhile, there are other beverages like the uh, the so-called mocha. So the mocha is this sort of beverage, you know, made with chocolate, a little bit of chocolate dust, uh, as well as milk. And that's really why, what the, the, the mocha that you get in a coffee shop, basically what it would mean is it's got some chocolate in it. Uh, now, that isn't really a beverage that was known in Italy, uh, but has come to exist in Italy recently in the form of something called the Marocchino, uh, the Moroccan. Again, we can we can have a debate about why it's called the Moroccan, but essentially in terms of what it is, it's like taking a, an, a, a sort of espresso macchiato and adding a little bit of chocolate to create this darker drink, and it would look like it's basically been influenced from the outside coming back. So there's a lot of global exchange around these drinks, even though they are essentially associated with Italy. Now, I will have to ask you briefly about the latte because I had an interesting experience with this was a few years ago, my wife and I went to Milan and we went to a cafe and I ordered a cappuccino and my wife tried to order a latte and the, uh, the woman who was serving us looked very confused and then eventually turned up with a cup of milk for her, which seemed like something you might serve to a small child. So how how's a latte come to mean something very different in Italy and then elsewhere in the world? Right. So this is, this is great, Rob, because this story exists in apocryphal form since time immemorial. And I've waited a long time to meet somebody who actually has said it's happened to them. Definitely happened to me. I, I recall it well. <laughs> That's because your wife ordered milk. Latte means milk in Italian. So if she said, I want a latte, they interpreted that as milk, which is pretty reasonable. <laughs> so that that's why. So cafe latte, though, is a different thing in Italy. Cafe latte is usually more of a domestic drink. And it's usually what was made at breakfast. And quite often people would say they were having cafe latte. It meant they'd made a little bit of coffee. They throw some warmed milk in, but they also quite often throw in something like a bit of bread or whatever. So um, it's essentially seen as this domestic drink rather than an espresso-based drink. So I think the answer to that, I mean, you would not normally see the words cafe latte on an Italian coffee shop menu. You might be beginning to see more of them now in tourist areas. I'm a little bit surprised that in Milan that they wouldn't have made the adjustment in their heads. But that's the essential issue there. So cafe latte for Italians is not really a bar drink. It's a it's a home drink and it's pretty much, you know, a sort of a breakfast type thing. Interestingly enough, at the beginning of the century when people were talking about cafe latte, they were often talking about cafe latte without there being any cafe in it, as it were, because it's sort of the, the kind of breakfast drink that would often be prepared with a, a surrogate coffee with something made with um, acorns or chicory or whatever. But there you are. What would you see as the most important historical legacy of the coffee industry? I think this goes actually to some of the very big issues that we have around coffee. Coffee is the ultimate sort of imperial colonial beverage in some ways because the whole history of coffee 
is the history of taking coffee and planting it around the world and it being consumed by and large, not in those countries in which it is planted, but in, if you like, a kind of, you know, global north, global south uh, spectrum. So it is, it, it's clearly, you know, has a, has a terrible legacy in that respect. It has a legacy around enslavement. It has a legacy that involves all kinds of iniquities. It's also a beverage now that unites a large portion of the world. So it's something that a lot of us drink. We drink it in many different ways. It's one of those interesting little markers of banal nationalism as to, you know, how does coffee in Britain differ from coffee in Italy, different from coffee in Indonesia. Uh, and Indonesia is quite a good um, case study of what I want to say. Indonesia now has a pretty thriving domestic coffee consumption. Um, I was in Indonesia recently. I was surprised just just how big a market that is domestically. And my view of the historical legacy of coffee is that we have a legacy that we have to now turn it into something that can sustain livelihoods, something that can unite rather than... Um, rather than divide us, as it were. Um, so I'm always pleased to see the adoption of coffee drinking in new markets and by new peoples, particularly producers, producer states, where in a sense that also allows for not a obscuring of the darker side of the history of coffee, but for a reckoning with that that can also say, nonetheless, this is something that we now produce, that we have put our skills and labour into and that we can consume as ours rather than see as a foreign imposition and i think that's where we need to try and move the legacy of coffee as it were from the historical tale that surrounds it and obviously coffee has been drunk by a huge number of people around the world throughout the centuries but are there any notable figures in history who were particularly known for their coffee consumption Yes, quite a few. I think it would be Voltaire, who was on 50 cups plus a day. Now, they are very small cups, but even so, that's a hell of a lot of coffee to be getting through. And we had a lot of those French Enlightenment figures were around that. So a lot of cultural figures have very, been very associated with coffee in various ways. Mozart was clearly a coffee drinker, wrote the coffee cantata. We have cases, I suppose the, one of the more interesting ones is Napoleon. Coffee is one of the things that really got Napoleon in a quandary in the sense that Napoleon was a coffee drinker. He was outraged by Haiti declaring independence he actually lost a lot of troops in Haiti because although the French tried to regain Haiti under Napoleon, they failed to do so. And when Napoleon is exiled, he's exiled you know, to St. Helena where coffee is grown in order that he can drink coffee. But so his life is sort of, and he's said to have been sort of muttering at various times to himself, damn coffee, because he's realised that this has created a, a problem for him. So he's quite an interesting 
study in a coffee drinker whose life and politics are intertwined with those of coffee. That was Professor Jonathan Morris of the University of Hertfordshire. Jonathan is the author of Coffee, A Global History, which was published by Reaction in 2018. And he's also the co-presenter of a podcast series called A History of Coffee, which is available on all major podcast platforms now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.